The text today is Genesis 2, verses 20b through 24. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Please remain standing and join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, I just pray that you bless your word this morning. Use the preacher as he brings it forth. I pray that we would all realize the depth of your love for us as your word speaks to our hearts. Help us to lift each other up and encourage each other, not just today, but every day. Teach us the true meaning of being the church. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, friends. Today we are continuing our study of the book of Genesis, a sermon series we're calling In the Beginning. Um, I do want to encourage you uh, to consider what Heather was talking about with our gospel communities, which are pretty much small groups. They meet at people's homes and here in different places. Um, and in particular, we're doing one on marriage, and that's kind of the, been the sermon series topic lately um, in, in the book of Genesis, was complementing it well. And it's for single people, too, because single people are thinking about getting married. <laughs> so um, it's a really um, excellent opportunity to consider those things, so please consider doing that. Um, we have one on Wednesday night. There's different ones that you can refer to your program. They're listed in there. Also, you heard <clears throat> excuse me, that we're having a little potluck um, after church. That's for everyone. Stay, have some pizza, whatever food is back there. That's in the back room where our kids normally are. So if, if you look to, it's to my right through the room, right? That's where all the stuff is. So um, feel free, stick around for a little while, shake some hands, get to know some people, um, and it'll be, it'll be good fun. Usually we have a, um, like a members meeting following that. We're not having that today. Just um, for, if anyone was curious, we're just going to eat and maybe have some time of prayer at the end, and then we'll, we'll go home and enjoy this cold Memorial Day weekend. <laughs> Excuse me. So we're continuing, like I said, our study. Um, I got like a big ball of sweat right here because that little kid is like a heat box. <laughs> I don't normally hold him for that long. Um, <laughs> so this morning we're continuing our study of God's Word in the book of Genesis. And it's the very first book of the Bible. If you have a Bible, I hope that you do have one with you. Um, if you don't have one, we can get one for you. But it's, the very, it's very easy to find because it's the first book in Scripture. It's been our aim to examine um, this very important book so that we can understand who God is, who we are, and what's the greater purpose of everything that God does. It's introduced right in the book of Genesis in his creation and in his purpose for redemption. Um, we've looked at the creation account, if you recall, the, the six days of creation. We looked at the Sabbath rest that it concluded with. And this morning, we get to enjoy the New Testament Sabbath rest, which is really the Lord's Day. Uh, we gather together today to rest, to consider all that God has done um, for creating us and for loving us, for the kingdom that is now and yet to come. So we've talked about these things. We've talked about the creation of man 
being in God's image, male and female, the dignity of both genders. Um, the divine creation of marriage, um, we, we, talked, we were talking about at length. Marriage is a creation ordinance. What that means is that God created it before sin entered the world. Marriage is something that God invented. It wasn't something man thought up in the Neolithic era as part of our evolutionary process. But marriage, according to scripture, is something that God created. Um, prior to any sin or prior to any curse, marriage was there. Fruitfulness in marriage, offspring, children were there. And this is the, the great subject that we're continuing this morning, marriage. Now you say, you know, that's good because I've had a really hard day of marriage today. And it's only 11 o'clock. <laughs> well, that's good. Um, um, maybe that's not good, but you're in the right place, I should say. You say, well, maybe this isn't too relevant to me because I'm not married. Um, I don't know that I ever want to be. And what, what's the point of it? It's just a piece of paper. That's why we're talking about this. It's something that's a very important conversation to have for Christians and non-Christians alike. <clears throat> I see us spending probably a few more weeks in this um, as we examine um, portions of Genesis because the, the, the text deals with it. So we're probably going to be in this for a few more weeks. And then hopefully we're going to start unpacking some key texts in the rest of the book of Genesis to, to um, talk about some other important um, subjects. I also kind of want to just take, you know, to give credit right now um, to a lot of my, my um, shaping and my understanding of marriage and what it is and understanding of scripture <clears throat> has really been shaped by Dr. Tim Keller um, who um, has wonderful uh, sermons on marriage that any of you could go online on his website, and I think you have to purchase them, but they're not very expensive. Um, they're wonderful sermons. I believe there are about nine, and they're fantastic. He has a wonderful book called The Meeting of Marriage, and really what he's doing in these sermons and in, um, in his book is he's expositing um, Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and Ephesians chapter 5. Um, so it's, they're, they're really fantastic and useful tools that I would encourage you. I just want to give him credit because I've listened to, to these sermons so much and read so much of the book several times, actually, um, that I, I just start to talk like him. So I'm not trying to rip off his language or, you know, or plagiarize or anything like that. It's just I've been so influenced by him that you're just going to, if you're familiar with his works, you're going to notice me talking like him. So I, I apologize if I don't always recall or remember to say he made up that phrase or whatnot. Um, I'm not trying to plagiarize. So, so that said, um, that disclaimer, <laughs> um, this same pastor, Dr. Keller, said this, and I quote, marriage is almost anything but sweet. <laughs> if anyone knows um, about marriage because you've been married or maybe you had parents were that, that were married, you might know how true that is, that it's almost anything but sweet. It is great, terrible, and glorious. <laughs> And anyone who's married, um, even in a healthy marriage, will be able to confirm the truth of that statement. That marriage is great, terrible, and glorious. You see, when we get married, we don't have that middle word in there. We just have great and glorious. But then when we get married, we realize that there's a shadow of death. <laughs> I'm not even trying to be funny. <clears throat> <laughs> I was actually looking more for a, like a more of a somber oh. <laughs> there is there are times of great high heights and other times of low lows 
That's what I've heard, though. My marriage is not like that at all. <laughs> if marriage, by the way, too, we've talked about this. If marriage is an analogy, that is, an analogy of the relationship God desires with his people, that's what, this is what we have talked about so far, that God created marriage so that we would know what he desires with us. If marriage is an analogy, and that analogy is the relationship God desires with his people, we should expect marriage to be like our relationship with God, right? And anyone who has ever sought out God, honestly, will know that it is also great and terrible and glorious. Amen? God can seem distant, unconcerned, far away, and then at other times he can seem like the closest friend and there with us through our troubles. There is that pendulum swing of this great divine relationship that we have with God that is oftentimes mirrored almost always in our marriages. So anyone who is a Christian knows <clears throat> that our relationship with God through Christ will take you to the highest heights and at other times leave you feeling utterly desolate. It can be a, a roller coaster of emotion. And this is what we continue to discuss this morning. It is so incredibly important because our understanding of marriage shapes our understanding of our relationship with God and vice versa. Our understanding of our relationship with God helps us shape our understanding of our relationship to our spouse. Concerning marriage, I just want to review a little bit. We've spent some time um, discussing some important things from our text in the book of Genesis. The first thing that we discussed was that marriages can only thrive when there is a divinely provided selflessness that imitates the selflessness of Jesus Christ. Selflessness is the power of marriage. It's what makes it work. If you cannot be selfless, your marriage will fall apart. The scriptures tell us in Ephesians, submit one to another out of reverence for Christ. How on earth are we ever to submit to each other unless we are imitating our Savior who submitted to the Father's will? So biblical love, we talked about, is a commitment, a decision, regardless of how you feel. It's a decision to put yourself second in your spouse first. That's what biblical love is. It's a binding commitment. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. There's that binding commitment. You are committed to this other person as if they are you. Now, feelings, I think, can take you to the front door of marriage, right? But only a choice is going to keep you going through it. <clears throat> you know, our culture, I think, really believes that we found love if we feel love, right? That's what we've just kind of been taught. That's the romantic comedy, right? You, 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 are, you are in love. You don't decide to love. It's something that just comes over you like this cloud. You can't control it. It's there, and maybe next, the next day it's not. They don't, our culture, and even our own sometime, sometimes um, hearts will tell us that it is not something that we decide to do, it's something that we feel. But love and marriage is a choice, a selfless service that brings emotion, that brings romance. 
You see, romance is the fruit of the choice to love the spouse in a selfless way. We talked about that um, in weeks past. We saw that, number two, we saw the definition of marriage is a covenant. That is a cleaving, a public promise, quote, a permanent and exclusive legal commitment to share your entire life with someone else. That's what it means. That's, that is the definition. Biblical love in marriage is a binding commitment, a decision, again, regardless of feelings. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Number three, we examine the priority of marriage. Remember, this was fun. Leave father and mother and cleave to wife. Right? This is the priority that our spouse has the, pri- the, pro- the most important relationship in our lives. Our children are not more important. Our friends, our family, um, our parents are not more important. We are to leave our homes, to leave our father and mother and cleave to our wife. Your marriage must become before friends, before parents, before children, and you disobey, disobey this, friends, at your own peril. Because God's law bites back. We might not like it. We might say, no, I, don't, I reject that view of marriage. But if you try to experiment, I guarantee you, you will get bit. You are one new person. And if that's true, and if the Bible is true, then you can't resist this. <clears throat> this morning, I want to move on to discuss the purpose of marriage. The purpose of marriage, which is intimate friendship and companionship. The purpose of marriage is friendship. Genesis chapter 1 verse 18. Let's review some of our texts. The Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. Right? I will make him a helper suitable for him. But for Adam, no suitable suitable helper was found. And then This is now bone of my bones, flesh, there's a unity, flesh of my flesh. And this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. And then it says, Adam and his wife were both naked in front of each other, and they felt no shame. You see, there is a a friendship implied by these statements. Genesis chapters 1 and 2, if you recall, try to think back with me a little bit. Maybe you're a little bit new with the Bible. But in Genesis chapter 1, it talks about how God created the heavens and the earth. And over and over again, we see these things called benedictions. And if you're from, you know, high holy church background, you'll know what a benediction is. If you're not, a benediction is really like a pronouncing of something good. It's like a blessing. So God created the heavens, and it was good. God created man and it was good. God created the fish and everything in the sea and all the creatures teeming in the oceans, and it was good. So here we have all these benedictions in the creation. All of these account prior to sin. Sin has not entered into the world yet because Adam and Eve had not rebelled against God yet. Everything is innocent in a sense. So here God is pronouncing these benedictions until he gets to the creation of Adam. And for the first time, what we see is a malediction, which is the opposite of a benediction, a pronouncing of something not good. And did you see that in the text? And it was not good that Adam 
was alone. In verse 18, it says this quite clearly. The thing that was not good was a life lived without friendship. In verse 18, that first malediction is about an isolation. To be only Adam, he needed to be more than just him. So the purpose of, so God creates Eve to provide for him not just children, not just kind of help plowing a field. He, pro, he provides Adam for, uh, excuse me, Eve for Adam for intimate fellowship. You see? One flesh doesn't mean just one body. This is not, sorry for saying this word in church, this is not just about sex. One flesh is more than that. It means that if your spouse, and here's the implication, that if your spouse is not your friend, that is not a marriage. If your spouse is not your friend, that is not a marriage. Now I have to pause there because we need to think about that. I'm not giving you an out of your marriage. (laughs) Oh, she's not my friend. I'm out of here. The pastor said it. (laughs) We're not married. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is you are undermining the purpose of marriage if you do not nurture a deep and meaningful friendship with your spouse. Now, maybe you don't have that this morning with your spouse. Maybe you've been married a long time, and lots of tragedies and fights later, you have become distant, and now your, your marriage is simply just a business transaction. It's a deal that you've made. You stay over there, I'll stay over here, and we won't bother each other anymore. Friends, you have undermined the purpose and power of marriage, and you can have it back at any point you want, the moment that you repent and become selfless again. You see, in the Old Testament, the phrase associated with the wife is covenant partner. Like the actual Hebrew word for wife depicts a covenant fellowship, a covenant relationship. Do you see why this is really about our relationship with God? Because this is what he wants with us. The purpose of marriage, then, is to join not two bodies merely, but two souls, soulmates. When Adam saw his wife, he said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Love you. I am you. You see what's going on here? In your presence, I know who I am. You complete me. Right? Jerry Maguire. (laughs) How could he watch that? He's a pastor. (laughs) If the purpose of marriage is companionship or friendship, then we need to know what friendship is, right? Let's talk about that. What is friendship? One one author uh, describes it like this. It is a deep oneness that comes through a mutual journey to the same horizon. You know, when I was a kid, this was easy because my mutual journey to the same horizon was candy. <laughs> you can become best friends with anybody if they have candy or they know someone that has candy, right? It's your mutual journey to the same horizon is very simple. 
you know, Ninja Turtles, you know, you name it, baseball. And as we grow up, things get maybe a little bit more important, I guess, for some. You know, for some it's work, for some it's politics, for some it's, it's social justice. These things are very noble and very important. Maybe for some of us it's just as simple as bowling, right? We have a mutual journey to the same horizon, and because of this, we can become friends with people who are very different from us, but we share a similar passion. And this is kind of what friendship is. It's a deep oneness that comes through a mutual journey to the same horizon. I will say this. The more important that horizon is, the more valuable it is to us, the more weighty it is an issue, the deeper the friendship can be. You see, if it's just over candy, then when we realize candy isn't all that satisfying, then why why am I friends with you? (laughs) I don't need candy anymore, right? C.S. Lewis wrote this book um, called The Four Loves. And if you don't know who he is, um, you probably remember the Chronicles of Narnia um, that they made into movies recently. Um, He wrote these books, I believe, in the 50s. I'm not really sure. But he lived in the um, the 20th century. And he wrote many, many books, including the Chronicles of Narnia. He started off as a a devout atheist, a very hostile atheist. And then one day, um, through his friendship with, believe it or not, J.R. Tolkien, who wrote The Lord of the Rings, um, Tolkien was a a believer in Jesus Christ. And he led C.S. Lewis to faith in Jesus and C.S. Lewis became a Christian, and not just a Christian, but an apologist. An apologist is a defender of the Christian faith. Um, so he would talk about reasons to believe in God, reasons to trust the scriptures. Um, a prolific writer, and honestly, some of his books are very complicated to understand um, when they deal more with heavy theology and apologetics. But C.S. Lewis wrote this book called The Four Loves, and he describes love in this book Um, in terms of four faces in Scripture, and this is what we see in the Bible. Two kinds of love that we see in the Bible are erotic love and friendship love, eros and philos. And what he said about erotic love or eros love, I'll use eros because that makes you squirm less. Eros love um, (laughs) describes two people looking at each other, right? That's eros love, two people looking at each other. But friendship love, he described as two people standing side by side looking at something together. You're looking at the same object. And that person is your friend. That is friendship love. If all you have is eros love, you only have each other, right? And eventually, and how many people know this, if eros love is two people looking at each other, The view gets old. We start wanting to look at something else, don't we? That's just the nature of being human being. Why isn't it our spouse is not as fantastic as they were the day we met them? Well, because our life isn't about them. We were created with eternity in our hearts, and our spouse is not the eternal God. So anything that you look at, not just your spouse, but your, your job, your money, your children, the view's going to get old. For any friendship to be meaningful and lasting, there must be something greater than the two of the friends. There must be something that's grabbed your attention that is more important, that is, more, that is about more than simply having the other person as a friend. 
You know what we call those friendships? Codependent. That's why prioritizing eros love over philos love is dangerous and short-lived. It doesn't work. If you get married because someone is good-looking or because they make you laugh, that will get old. It doesn't last. But the soul union, the friendship that marriage needs, requires a horizon that you're looking at, a greater horizon. And for the Christian, that common horizon is Jesus Christ and his coming kingdom. The thing that we're looking towards is the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And friends, that's not just in marriage, but that's in any friendship as Christians. That's in the church. That's what we're to aspire to together. This, the union that requ- this union requiring a greater horizon is the kingdom of Jesus Christ, that union. If that's the case then, it means that the goal of a Christian marriage is to deliver the other person to the kingdom looking more like Jesus. The reason we get married, friends, as Christians, is so that I can be formed and my spouse can be formed more into Christ's likeness for when Christ returns. It is not so that we can have a second income. It's not even, friends, so that I can feel affection or approval from another person. Now, a healthy marriage is going to include those things, but friends, you will never get those things from your spouse unless there is a grander horizon, a horizon that you're both looking to that is more wonderful and glorious and spectacular than the view of the person sitting across from you. The purpose of friendship, then, is sanctification. That's the Bible word for it. The Christ-likeness, that we're becoming more like Jesus, more right, more like him, more beautiful, more wonderful, more lovely. You see? That's what sanctification is in, in Scripture. To serve the other, that they might look more and more like Jesus. Imagine, as married people, if we would stop and remember that that my job as a spouse is to help my spouse love Jesus more. It takes the eyes off of me and what I'm not getting in any particular moment or how I'm being treated in any particular moment. And it says, in spite of all of this, I have a job to do. And my job is to look like and love Jesus Christ so that my spouse can look like and love Jesus Christ too. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why did he do that? So that he could get her money. So that he could get, you know, intimacy. No. To make her holy. Cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. You see, friends, my concern in my marriage and my concern for marriages in general is that the reason we don't do that for our spouse is because we don't do that at all. We don't look at our Christian lives as 
prioritized by becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. We're not people of prayer. We don't confess our sins regularly. We don't delight in the word of God. We come to church every now and then, and that's it. So we don't work to make our spouses holy because we're not holy. See, I know this is a hard word, but friends, understand that I don't see you right now. I see a big mirror in front of me because I'm prone to this so frequently, to forget the love of Christ, to forget his love for me and what he did for me on the cross, that he wanted to be wed to me, that he cleansed me, that he offered his son to die for me on the cross so that I could enter in his kingdom as a spotless, righteous bride. I forget that, and I become more concerned with how much money I have or how much I lost or what's the future hold or my friendships aren't as thrilling or vibrant as they used to be. And I just become grumpy and angry and God is an afterthought. And I wonder why I'm not leading my, my wife to Christ-likeness. Because I don't lead myself to Christ-likeness. See? In Christian marriage, we need to see what Dr. Keller calls the glory self in each other. The glory self. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. The Bible never describes our Christian experience as perfect, completely clean. In other words, we mess up still. We're dirty still. But Jesus is bringing us, sanctifying us, making us. It's a process, in other words, until when he comes back, that work is complete and full. But in the meantime, we trip and fall, and we get up, and we get dirty, and we have to clean, right? It's a process. It's, it's mistakes that we make, and we need to repent and confess. And that's the difficulty sometimes of the spiritual life. The ultimate purpose of marriage is the journey towards that. The friend that looks to the kingdom with you and doesn't see your imperfections and irritants now but trust that God is forming that person into what they will be completely and perfectly. Friends, romance is the dessert. It's the frosting on the cake. It's the results. But how many people know it takes a long time to make a cake? Doesn't it? You gotta wait and you gotta mix and you gotta beat and sometimes you drop the thing on the floor and you gotta start all over again. And it's difficult, and the house gets hot, and you turn the oven on. It's not easy to bake. But one day, out pops this cake, and there's some frosting for you, and that's romance. But it requires work. If you think that it just happens, that it's just something that overwhelms you like a wave, then you are deceived, friend. It needs to be nurtured. A, a, a marriage without romance is problematic, I admit, but it's normal. You are committed to the other person's transformation and to being more and more like Jesus, and any lower goal than that misses the point. If your goal in marriage is romance, it misses the point. In marriage, 
Friendship is the cake and romance is the frosting. And that friendship is, the goal of that friendship is to make you more and more like Jesus Christ. And what happens when you're committed to that is romance comes. Affection comes. Deep love comes. And that means that when you consider a potential marriage partner, if you're not married yet, that you need to marry someone who has the potential to be your very best friend. Not the one who looks great in a pair of Levi's. <laughs> because you know, Levi's don't work forever. <laughs> in friendship, there's a deep oneness. One body, one soul that comes from walking together to a common horizon, right? To present that, that person without spot, without blemish. Uh, to Jesus Christ. Mandy and I had an opportunity to travel, thanks to my Aunt Linda, um, to travel to Hawaii for our honeymoon when we got married about nine years ago now. And the first day that we got there, um, we decided to go visit this uh, scenic overlook uh, that we read about in one of the travel guides. And it takes you to this, this, this mountainous area, the south side of the island that we were on, called, and it was Kauai. So we went down to this place. We found it. There was a, a, a road that you could drive up to get to the scenic overlook. So we drive to the top of the mountain and got to this overlook. And then we parked our car. And then you got to walk a little bit down this path. So we, we start heading there. And then finally, we're starting to get to see like where people are gathered. And we're thinking, this must be where the overlook is. So we head towards the people. And we get there. And sure enough, it's the overlook. But, oh, bummer, um, clouds everywhere, just covered. You couldn't see um, five feet. You literally could not see five feet in front of your face. There, a cloud just had come. And here was this great cloud that, we, we, you know, we were so excited to see this overlook. So we, we're standing there 20 minutes about-ish. And then all of a sudden, the clouds just sort of lifted. They, they moved. And then we could see everything. And, and good grief, it was gorgeous. It was probably the most beautiful thing I've ever seen, right? Here are the, these big mountains right, right off the side of the ocean, these cliffs. Um, they're not even rock cliffs. They're, they're just covered in this green growth, right? Purple and green and just beautiful. And, um, and at the bottom, of course, is this amazing tropical blue ocean. And here we are just kind of breathtaking by th this view, this amazing view. And then all of a sudden, without notice, the clouds come back and we can't see it. As quickly as the clouds lifted, they returned. Friends, that's what the Christian life is like for all of us. This is a beautiful analogy I heard. Because when we get to heaven, we're like those mountains without, the, without any clouds. Right? We don't sin against God or each other anymore. We're not angry and bitter, mad. We're that beautiful horizon you see, but the Christian life, though, we get glimpses of that into each other sometimes. You see, sometimes we see it. There it is. But then the, then the next day, the clouds are back, and we're honking our horn and giving someone the bird, right? <laughs> the clouds have returned. Not me. But, you know, I've heard other, I, I've seen some of you do it. <laughs> so here we go. Edit that. <laughs> um, <laughs> but that's what happens and that's what marriage is like we see this person this 
that loves Jesus, that's acting like Jesus, and then all of a sudden the next day, what happened? It's like a switch. And that's what the Christian, that's what the Christian life is like, and that's what marriage is like if you're a Christian. So this glory self, the full beauty of everything that we're meant to be in Christ is sometimes covered with clouds, covered with the flesh, covered with weakness, covered with sin. And all of this remains. And these are the people that we're one with in marriage. We're one not with the glo- just with the glory self, but with the clouds too. It reminds us that we are fallen and we fail. And we should expect in marriage to be failed. To be sinned against. Being a Christian friend means that we're committed to the other person's glory self. And even outside of marriage, as a church, that's what we should be committed to in each other. Committed to each other's glory self. Not the angry self, not the bitter self, right? Not the depressed self. The glory self that's in you because of Christ. We're committed to that glory self. We know, I know who you are really. I know why you've been created. And it's in you. And for many of you, I've seen it. And I love it. And my job as a pastor is to look at that and to nurture that and to make that grow, right? We see the glory under that brokenness. And we get to be part of the process. And the Bible says that Christian marriage, that marriage in general, was created for that great purpose. To help us see the glory self in each other and move us to greater love for Christ. Any Christian friendship should be like this, and every marriage should carry this purpose. It was not good for man to be alone. Marriage is sanctifying. That's what it does. It's sanctifying. God brings us a helper in our spouse to help us for that great purpose. A helper that is flesh of our flesh, bone of our bones. It's not simply just to keep us company or to make us feel good about ourselves. Or to have a trophy. Look what I sna- snagged. It becomes nagged later. <laughs> a sole companion meant to help the other look to the most glorious end together. And that's full life with our maker. A true friend, isn't, isn't this true? A true friend is consistent. Someone that's reliable. Someone that's committed to you. A true friend is honest. They're not going to pull punches. They're they're not going to let you get away with things because they're afraid of how you'll react. A true friend, if you really have a good friend, you know that doesn't exist. A true friend, friend is transparent. They were naked in front of each other, and they were not ashamed. If you have a good friend, you know that there's not much, if anything, you can't talk about with them. Right? They're transparent with each other. They were naked and unashamed. And so many marriages are, are, are comprised of two people that are clothed because when they open up, it's humiliating. A true friendship blesses. To bless, to see great things 
for the other person, right? It's affirmation, but it's so much more than affirmation. It's seeing way deep down inside the other person to that glory self to affirm that part of that person, the general conviction that that's who they are in spite of those moments of cloudiness, right? That they're not that person, that they're new in Christ, and that you have a job as a spouse and as a friend to lead them to Christ-likeness. So friends, if you are married, do everything possible to be best friends with your spouse. And if it hasn't been like that in a long, long time, then the first, just take a step. Just do something. Start heading in that direction again. I want to close with some implications from some of these things. About the helper, uh, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, the the implications of this friendship in in of marriage. In middle school, um, what what is middle school? About twelve years old, right? Ish. Um, I I remember just kind of burning through crushes like hay on a fire, right? Like it depended what week I it was to know what girl I was in love with that week. Right? And do they like like me? I like you, but I don't like like you. Right? That, that's, that was our life. It was so easy. It's so easy to fall in like with someone. Right? And unfortunately, as we grow, that's our same standard. How do they make me feel about myself? And that's, that's what we think love is. And that's the first implication of marriage. If marriage is, the purpose of marriage is friendship inspired by sanctification, which is growth in Christ, you are going to repeatedly fall in and out of like with each other. Amen? Amen. (laughs) It's just true. There's going to be a lot of cloudy days. And on those cloudy days, you're not going to like that person very much. They'll cause you to not like them, to fall out of like. There aren't, isn't it just true, if we're all being honest, none of us are going to say this out loud, right, because some of our spouses are in the room, but isn't it just true that there are certain days where we just don't like our spouse very much, and we wonder, like, who are you? Why? <laughs> Why did I marry you? And, and that can be kind of like a fleeting type of feeling, and then an hour later you're sorry and you make up. But how many people know that marriage can come to a point where that just sets in? And you just wonder, like, what did I do? Where am I? How did this happen? And you feel like that. In a healthy Christian marriage, two people have to see the difference between the clouds and the glory. You have to. And if you're not committed to that cl- the glory because of the sting of the clouds, your marriage isn't going to work. It's true at times that when marriages become exceedingly challenging, that we do start picturing ourselves being with someone better. How many people have gone through that? Don't say it out loud. But we, we start picturing, you know, I, I married the wrong person. That's what happened. I married the wrong person. There was someone better for me. That's how we say it to make it sound better, right? There was someone better for me. 
What this means, if you are going to fall in and out of like with each other, the Christian will know that that is a true statement. That there is someone better for you. But that someone better is married to you. The someone better for you is the person being sanctified, being, becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. Do you see the point there? Because if we're growing in Christ, isn't it true that I'm going to become more like him, which means I'm going to have less cloudy days. I'm going to be a less, less of a jerk to people around me. Less impatience, having more joy, filled with more peace. That's what I'm being formed into. So there is a better person for us out there, but it's the person you're married to. Healthy Christian marriages want someone better too, but they know that someone better is them, the glory them. And they're just not there yet. But friend, neither are you. You see, I want to just kind of stop here for a moment. I, I get that, um, that there are exceptions to this. The Bible even provides exceptions. So I'm not trying to humiliate anyone here that has had a marriage that ended. Because the Bible does allow for that at times. My, my hope, though, is that we can examine ourselves and know what a, a true and healthy marriage is and work towards having a thriving one and not abandon it simply because of what would be normal challenges. Okay? The second implication is that we need to beware of starting a relationship in the normal, cultural, American way. Romance and then friendship, right? Eros, then philos. That's how we order things in our culture. Um, as a younger single man, when I was getting older, I'm not in middle school anymore, I was, you know, typical to any, you know, um, red-blooded American guy, you know, like, I'd go into a room and start scanning the scene, Right? <laughs> Who's going to marry me? <laughs> Who's so lucky? Right? I start scanning the room, right? This, this is true. I think we've all done this. And we pick out three or four people that are potential. There they are. They're, going, they're, right, they're sitting right over there. Okay? Here I come. Right? Got a pocket full of money. I'm ready. Got, I'm, I just showered. I shaved. I got my cologne on. And I'm going to really impress this woman. Right? Um, and, and, and how do I make that decision in that room? What do I base it on? I haven't met these people from Adam. Like most of us, if you're like me and like most of us, it's simply based on the way they look. That's what we do. We, we start a relationship almost exclusively based on the way we visually see another person, what we, pre what we prefer. Tall, skinny, big, little, you know, you name it. We all got our preferences. So we walk into a room, we decide beforehand, and sometimes we even, we're like Vegas. We start playing the odds. Nah, she's going to say no. You know, like, I'm not Brad Pitt, you know, so I'll, that's, I'm not even going to try. <laughs> I'm going to go over there. So we, that, we reason like that, too. So we picked it, you know, we're, we're gambling, we're taking some risks, and that's what we do. And within minutes, we've picked out the few that we've selected. It's almost entirely based on things physical. Uh, then we start talking to them. And if they seem a little bit too weird or maybe you're just way too different, you move on to the, you know, the second person. That's not going to work. There's, I, had a th I had another option here, so I'll, I'll go to that other person. This one's weird. right? And that's common in our culture, isn't it? 
before we even start asking the question if this person could be a good friend to me, we're already deeply committed in a romantic relationship. And we usually find out much later that they are not, that they, they would not be the best friend. We rule out potentially excellent partners simply because of the way they look or how much money they have or how funny or dry they are. We end up with the wrong ones sometimes because we're just afraid of being alone. So friends, we need to be careful to be patient and to not simply look at potential spouses based on very material things. I'm not suggesting, by the way, that, the, that you don't consider those at all. But what I am suggesting is there is something much more important than looks or jobs or career, or even if they want kids or not. Do you know that people change? How many, I'm going to ask it again. Do you know that people change? Okay. So the person that you marry tomorrow is not going to be the same person in five years. You thought they wanted to live locally. Now they don't. What's going on? I didn't marry you. I thought you wanted kids. Now you don't. What happens? So you, you don't, when, when you get married to a person, your covenant isn't promising to provide kids or finances or a place that you're living. Your promise is to love the person. That's why the power of marriage is selflessness. Number three, the third implication, have the most glorious horizon in your marriage. Have the best horizon, I could say it like that. The most worthwhile horizon. If the purpose of marriage is friendship and a friendship is two people looking to the same horizon, don't settle for cheap horizons. Counterfeit horizons. Don't let your horizon be children or family or security or even, by the way, a deepening affection for each other. Don't let that be your goal. Don't let the, that be what you look to. The most glorious friendships thrive off a shared vision for that which is most important. And for the Christian and for all, what is most important is that Christ's kingdom is coming. That Christ's kingdom is here and it is coming. It is now and present and it is then in future. You were created to be wed to the better bridegroom. That's your most glorious end. Look to that. Let that be your horizon. Because if it's not, if it's something else, your marriage is only as strong as what that horizon is. The person you should marry is the person who gives you the greatest vision of your glory self with Christ. Friends, ch chances are you didn't get married with any of this in mind. And, ch and chances are if you are married, you might not be married to a person that has that vision in mind for you. But that's okay because you can start right now. To be a friend to your, your spouse as one body, as one flesh, cleanse your body, nourish it, cherish it. And begin today. And your understanding of how to do this develops over time. You must intentionally become friends and work at becoming friends. Your spouse, you guys probably know this in more ways than one, they're going to see the filthiest parts of you. Like only they will see. They're going to see the most filthy parts of your body, of your soul. But they were naked 
and they were not ashamed. Your spouse can take it, in other words. You can take it in Christ. If the horizon is not Christ's kingdom, if it's not Jesus, if the horizon is family, or if the horizon is security, what if for them their horizon changes? In other words, that's not as important to them anymore as it used to be. What happens is they broke the deal, didn't they? And now you're mad. But no matter, no matter what happens in your relationship, your horizon can always be Jesus Christ, and you can always lead your spouse in that direction as well, even if they're going off the wig. You can still loving them, lovingly move them there. The moment the other person no longer complements your agenda, they become a liability, an obstacle, preventing you from what it is you wanted out of the marriage. Right? And in this scheme, your spouse is a tool to get something that you want for you. And once they're no longer useful, now they're getting in the way. And I'm not happy anymore. And that's what happens, isn't it? But if marriage, if your job as a spouse is not about you, but it's about making your spouse more like Jesus, then you always have a job to do. And you always can do that job till the day you die. Even if not for a moment your spouse responds positively to it, you can be a diligent worker and love them like Jesus loves them. The fourth implication, be careful with your friendships. If marriage is a deep friendship, if that's the purpose of marriage, male and female friendships before and after marriage, you need to be careful with them. When you become very good friends, biblically, you're dating. I know we don't like this, but this is just reality. It is very difficult, if not impossible, for a single man and a single woman to become very good friends Without, after a certain amount of time passing with it not starting to feel romantic. And it's just as true, it's just as true in marriage. If you have a, uh, a spouse that is a better friend to you than your wife, you run the risk of having an emotional affair. You guys have probably heard of this language. Number five, a Christian needs to marry a Christian. The first reason is that scripture tells us, first of all, not to, uh, for a Christian to marry someone who is not a Christian. It's not because we think we're better than people who are not a Christian. But if the purpose of marriage is friendship, and friendship is leading one person to a greater glory self, then a person who's not a Christian will never want to do that for you. They'll never have that goal. They'll, ne they'll never have that vision. If you marry someone who is not a Christian, who does not share your faith, you're going to have to put Jesus in the back seat or you're going to have to put your husband in the back seat either way two very important relationships one of them is going to get undermined that's what's going to happen you will either have to put your faith in the back seat or put your husband in the back seat because if they don't <laughs> I heard that <laughs> if they don't get Jesus 
they won't get you. Now, listen, there's hope for you. If you're, if you're married to someone who is not a Christian, I'm not saying that your marriage is destined for misery and that it can't work. You can still love them like Christ loved them, but there's something that you're missing out on in, in the marriage. Isn't that true? That you're, you're not going to the same horizon, that the friendship isn't quite as thriving as it could have. Number six, and here's the last implication. Jesus Christ's friendship is the greatest friendship. You know what that means? You don't need to get married. You don't need to get married to have a great friend because you have one in Jesus Christ and he is the bridegroom. That gives you freedom. That gives you the ability to wait for the right person, right? That gives you perspective. Understanding this frees you from deriving your self-worth from the affection of another. You'll be able to thrive in your singleness with great joy and self-worth, right? Amen? It frees you from demanding your spouse to be what only Jesus can be. There's a better friend than your spouse, and that frees you up. Amen? Amen. Friends, come to Jesus. Come to his friendship first and understand the power of um, the friendship that you can have in your marriage. Amen? Let's pray.